and they don't have the resources to get after the cislunar emission today. So I advocate and I, and I articulate exactly why I think this number is, is right. But for a five-year span, let's get Congress to invest an additional $250 million a year, roughly, and allow the Space Force to get an additional 200 personnel uh, to focus on the cislunar mission. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there. On this week's podcast, we're focusing on national security interests way out there in the cislunar region. This week, Japan became the fifth nation ever to successfully land a spacecraft on the moon. The United States and Japan have had a mutual defense treaty since 1951, and the island nation is a signatory of the U.S.-led Artemis Accords. The accords are non-binding, but they do signal a commitment to a set of in-space behavior principles, and they include assistance on the moon, Mars, on asteroids, and more. These accords encompass the cislunar region, this area of space beyond the Earth orbits where the gravitational pull of both the Earth and the Moon are at play and affect objects in space. So in your mind's eye, consider that the moon is generally about 384,000 kilometers away from the Earth's surface. The cislunar region starts from just beyond geosynchronous orbit and extends beyond the moon by at least 55,000 kilometers. The area is vast and U.S. allies partners, and antagonists are ramping up capital-intensive activities in the region, like exploration and commercial enterprise. This month, Astrobotics' mission to the moon suffered a major propulsion malfunction shortly after launch on January 8th. On Thursday afternoon, the spacecraft, called the Peregrine, it burned up in the Earth's atmosphere on Thursday afternoon. NASA contracted that mission for $108 million, and it has at least two, but possibly four, more commercial payload missions to the moon scheduled for this year. And before the end of June, China is expected to launch its lunar sample return mission. And those are just the big missions. There are U.S. companies working on cislunar infrastructure projects, like setting up an in-space refueling system. So in a time of great power competition on Earth and in space, there are questions about who is responsible for securing U.S. interests in cislunar space. Our guest this week, Charles Galbraith of the Mitchell Institute, he says the responsibility is squarely with the U.S. Space Force, but it needs funds and personnel to be ready. Here's our conversation. Hello, Charles. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here with you. Now, before we dig into your policy paper, let's take a moment. Briefly tell us a bit about yourself. How did you become involved with the intersection of national security and space? Thanks, Laura. So uh, I retired from the Space Force, uh, Colonel Charles Galbraith, uh, after 30 years uh, in the Air Force and the Space Force, and was fortunate enough to be part of the stand-up of the headquarters staff here in D.C. And when I retired, um, I wanted to continue 
to advocate for the Space Force and to continue to be a thought leader in the direction that they were heading. And that's why I was so happy to, to find the Mitchell Institute uh, and join the team uh, almost a year ago uh, to uh, do exactly that, advocate, educate, uh, and, and really be a driver for where the, the service needs to head strategically. So were you a space operator as well, or mostly in policy? I mean, so, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Like, like you know, where did you get, which, when did you stick your toe in the water or toe into space? <laughs> well, uh, so I was a career space operator, um, but I spent most of my time doing space acquisition. Uh, so I swam between those two lanes uh, for the bulk of that 30 years. So I started in ICBM operations, uh, went on to do some space acquisitions, uh, got a master's degree from AFIT in, in space operations, did space test, did some space launch, did some space control, did policy, uh, did some strategic thinking as well, um, got to be a fellow at RAND working on, on space activities. And so over that 30 years, I developed a, a great appreciation for the breadth and the depth uh, that we have to really move out for uh, in the space domain. Oh, that's a lot. And, you know, there are not that many people that get to to go into all the various uh, parts of, of their, you know, specialization or their domain even. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm very fortunate. So just to start with, I just love the title. And for those of you who want to go and read Charles's report for yourselves, it's called Securing Cislunar Space and the First Island Off the Coast of Earth. It's a real blue water proposal at a time when many in and out of uniform have been chafing, uh, well, to be a bit more genteel, they've been critical of what they see as a brown water approach to securing U.S. interests in space. You know, limiting the vision of the U.S. Space Force to near-Earth orbits with a heavy, and, and I would argue, a necessary focus on low-Earth orbit and the necessary satellite constellation architectures to support the big mission of missile defense. But that's just the today challenge, right? I mean, what you're talking about is the challenge that is coming, whether we like it or not, whether we're prepared for it or not. I'd like you to explain to the audience what you're seeing as our fast approaching national security challenge in cislunar space, because that future is rapidly approaching, like faster than many policymakers in the White House or on the Hill, even realize. Charles, what do you see? Why did you write this paper? And why now? Well, those are great questions. Uh, so I'll take my time to try to, to work through all of them. Let me just start with, for those that aren't familiar with what cislunar even means, um, you know, we're very familiar with objects in Earth orbit. We call it the geocentric regime, basically geosynchronous orbit and below. Objects that are basically, their trajectory is bound by the gravitational attraction of the Earth. But as we move further out, the gravitational attraction of the moon begins to alter that trajectory. And so now you actually have two large bodies tugging at the trajectory of a spacecraft. And so this three-body problem that we have to face really complicates uh, orbital mechanics as, as well as how we track objects in space. So that just for those that aren't familiar with what cislunar is, it refers to that region of space uh, that is uh, influenced by the gravity of, of both bodies. Um, I, I think there's a lot of, of challenges to be had uh, in the cislunar domain. 
there's a lot of technical challenges that have to be overcome. There's some political and, and norms establishment challenges that also have to be overcome. Uh, but part of your question was the, the tendency by the, the Space Force leadership today to focus on this brown water aspect. This, Which this is close, a now challenge, for sure. It is a now challenge. And, and honestly, I don't fault the leadership for that approach at all. I, I think given the limited resources that it has, it has to focus on what is needed today or what will be needed tonight to secure those space capabilities that we've all come to rely on so heavily. But I will say that this race to the moon and the competition that we're in, primarily with China, means that uh, this is happening today. And there are things that we need to do today to secure our ability to freely access key regions on, on the moon and the cislunar domain, as well as to safely conduct our operations there. The fact that we have very limited domain awareness, space domain awareness, SDA, for the cislunar regime means that uh, a country like China could place a spacecraft on a trajectory around the moon and basically come back towards the geocentric regime completely unwarned and, and produce a surprise effect against the assets that we rely on. So from a national security perspective, there is a, very much an impetus to maintain our awareness uh, in this domain. Uh, but I don't think it needs to stop at domain awareness. I think we also need communications capability and we need position navigation and timing capabilities in this area because what is driving us to the cislunar regime and to the moon are a combination of civil uh, and commercial interests, scientific activities, economic activities, as well as national security. And where I see the Space Force and U.S. Space Command primarily uh, playing in this regime is establishing some basic level of infrastructure that can accelerate those commercial and those civil activities so that they can get there and establish the norms that we need uh, for a safe and secure cislunar environment. You know, something that I really appreciated that you wrote in your report, which really also goes to your title, you wrote quote, China's comparison of the moon to the first island chain in the Western Pacific signals that their approach will be based on territorial claims, uh, clandestine weaponization, and regional access denial. You know, we have a lot of listeners, uh, engineers, investors, academics, that may not be so read up on what's happening in the Western Pacific. Could you take a moment and explain why you made this particular comparison, which is also, you know, in the title of the paper? Yeah. So it was the lead uh, for the Chinese lunar program that actually made that statement comparing the moon to the first island chain, the Daewoo Islands, uh, and Mars to the second island chain. And so I thought, well, that invites the comparison to what they've done. Also in that quote uh, from that Chinese official was the, the, the this notion of if we don't go there, we're going to be blamed by our descendants. And if someone else goes there, they're going to keep us from going there and we won't be able to. And that is not the approach that the United States and our allies as part of the Artemis Accords are taking. We want this to be free and open for all nations. But the thought that if we get there first, China won't be able to because we won't let them, that suggests to me that they have that view and they may try to keep us from getting to, to some regions. And as I note in the paper, China is the only one that has landed uh, on the far side of the moon and actually has a communications platform on that far side of the moon that can enable some of the activities I, I mentioned earlier. 
Um, but you know, that's, that sets a precedent. And so as we move out further from the geocentric regime into the, the solar system, what we do in the moon is going to set the precedent and let's make sure that we establish that precedent the way we want it to be free, open, cooperative, transparent, uh, and peaceful. You know, plus, I mean, the comparison, I also think in, in terms of, of, you know, what's happening in the Western Pacific is really apropos because we've had, you know, lots of coverage of what's been going on in the Philippines with access denial to Filipino fishermen, uh, yeah. as well as to the Filipino uh, Coast Guard. I know that we have been engaged in missions. Our mm-hmm. Navy has. So, you know, when you when you see that and you, you think about the moon being the first island chain, yeah, it's it's kind of concerning, isn't it? it? It is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've seen them get dangerously close and actually impact uh, other ships. We've seen them fly aircraft uh, dangerously close to U.S. aircraft in international airspace. That's what's really troubling. We've yeah. seen them establish, build islands, and then weaponize those islands to try to extend their territorial claims further into internationally you know, free areas, the commons. Uh, and, and it's that type of approach that we definitely do not want to see emulated in uh, in the lunar environment, the cislunar environment, the way we're seeing it emulated in the Red Sea, for example. Um, one of the allies of China in their race to the moon is Iran. And of course, Iran is backing some extremists that are exerting you know, hostile actions in the Red Sea, trying to uh, take away what the rest of the world understands to be a common uh, area of transit. You know, some are going to ask... Or, or even argue, you know, why should the U.S. Space Force even go there to the Cislunar region? I mean, why should they go that far out there at all? Well, fundamentally, at its core, the Space Force, as it recognizes in its mission statement, is there to secure U.S. interests into and from space, where, wherever those interests are. And there are some profound economic uh, as well as scientific and national security interests that will be evolving and developing in the cislunar regime uh, as time moves on. And we need to be able to have the capabilities to secure those. And by secure, I, I mean, make sure that we have access to. That nowhere in my paper am I talking about weaponizing the cislunar regime at all. I want to make that very clear. Uh, but there are things that we can do to monitor activities, highlight if there is dangerous or hostile behavior by, by another party or irresponsible behavior. And then let's solve that using diplomatic means here on earth. You know, economically and strategically, there really is just a lot of activity in and around the moon. Just in the first half of this year, for all of you listening to this episode, we're recording days before Japan is slated to make an attempt to land on the moon. Uh, Next month, there is going to be a launch, uh, a commercial launch in support of NASA's Artemis program. And there should be a third third one later this year. There was a first one um, in January and this month uh, it didn't really end up too well, but you know we'll we'll get into that in a, in a later point maybe. Um, but sometime before the end of June, China is expected to launch the Chang'e Six mission, which will include four moon landing spacecraft that allegedly have the mission to collect and then return lunar regolith samples from the 
far side where no one except China can see, as you just said, and return those samples to Earth. So, you know, if you pull the U.S. commercial space sector, there is a growing number of companies that want to set up businesses some 384,000 kilometers away on the moon or on lunar orbits. Now, when I spoke with them just about two years ago, they were really agitated about not just a lack of a plan, but the absence of an audience willing to hear their concerns and their desire for the Space Force to secure and protect their commercial activities. Um, Again, that was almost two years ago. Now, with your institute, through your paper, you know, you're now arguing for the same, but with details. You know, what does the Department of Defense, the Department of the Air Force, and the Space Force, I mean, what do they need to do to get after this? Or or does this even start there? Maybe it starts in the White House or on the Hill. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right, Laura. So... uh, like I said, I don't fault the Space Force leadership for managing their limited resources the way they have to get after the fight tonight. But what I'm advocating for in this paper and what the Mitchell Institute is really getting after is the fact that there needs to be additive growth to the Space Force in order for the Space Force to be able to secure the interests that are growing in the cislunar domain. And this is important because as the Space Force was established, it was established a very small service, the smallest service. Um, I mean, I think there's something like 13,000 total guardians right now uh, with about a $30 billion a year budget. So very, very small. And they don't have the resources to get after the cislunar mission today. So I advocate and I I articulate exactly why I think this number is is right. But for a five-year span, let's get Congress to invest an additional $250 million a year, roughly, and allow the Space Force to get an additional 200 personnel. Uh, to focus on the cislunar mission. Now, those personnel are going to be a combination of the science and technology experts that uh, are currently working at DARPA and the Air Force Research Lab uh, to develop certain types of capabilities like the Draco uh, nuclear rocket or uh, AFRL's Oracle space domain awareness uh, for cislunar uh, capability. Um, So some of those personnel have to be part of that S&T community. But then they need to transition also to the acquisition side to develop full architectures of operational capabilities and then have some for the um, operations, the no kidding operations uh, of, of those systems. And I also am advocating that some of those professionals need to be spending time in school because the unique challenges of the cislunar are so drastic and require such an in-depth knowledge from uh you know, the physics perspective, uh, that they need additional education and training uh, to be ready. Uh, I'm going to jump in real quick with a question, though, on that. Sure. Because we know that a lot of, you know, folks in uniform, quite rightly, you know, need to really look out for themselves because they're the ones that are going to look out for themselves and their families. But that if, you know, guardians or other military personnel, you've seen this through your career, right, as a colonel, you know that if you spend too much time in school, you, you, you know, lose the leadership opportunities and those opportunities to to progress through your career? So, uh, yes and no. Uh, I think uh, in many ways there is uh, a need for that advanced education in order to prepare leaders for those leadership positions later. Uh, 
Um, oh, no doubt. No I, argument I, here. Yeah, I, I mentioned that I went to the Air Force Institute of Technology uh, and got a master's degree in space operations. Uh, I also went to Air Command and Staff College and got a master's degree there. I spent a year with RAND and got education there. Uh, I did Joint Forces Staff College. All of these things helped prepare me for different leadership positions. In the same way, I think we can take some of the cadre that is focusing on the cislunar mission, educate them on basics of cislunar, and then later in life, get a master's degree or a PhD uh, in, in that same field so that they become true, deep experts in this area and then can lead squadrons, can lead acquisition organizations, uh, even deltas, focusing on the cislunar mission. So I don't think it's an either or. Uh, I know other services have a different view on this. Uh, the Navy, for example, if you're off the ship, you're, you're hurting your career. Um, I think the Air Force, where, where I spent 28 years, uh, definitely valued education. And I think the Space Force, because so much of what we're going to deal with as Guardians is, is technical in nature, uh, that it will even be even more technically oriented and even more uh, important to get the right education in place. Uh, we can't underestimate or undervalue how, how, how important it is for the Guardians to have the right expertise here. So that, that, that roughly equates to 200 Guardians that we're going to need to increase the Space Force by focusing on the Cislunar mission. Uh, I mentioned $250 million plus up over five years. That's to uh, increase uh, R&D in certain areas. It's to field operational capabilities, uh, and it's to pay for that education, uh, as well as basic things like what is our strategy? What is the DoD strategy for Cislunar? Uh, there is a national science and technology strategy for Cislunar, but how does the DoD fit into that? So there are all of these different elements that have to be brought together. I hate to jump in, but I just don't want to move on to strategy yet because I do have a question about that. Sure. And I, I just want to, you know, key in a, a little bit on on the people because I just feel like there isn't always really enough discussion about the number of people that are actually in the Space Force, both in uniform and in the civilian side. So I just got to ask, is 200 really enough? Seriously? Because whenever I interview folks from the Space Force and I ask them to explain what their job is, I mean, their their current job is as long as my arm, line by line, of all the things that they're responsible for. And I just feel like they're kind of spread thinly over such heavy technology and science, right? I mean, it takes a lot of brain power and a lot of focus to, to do what Space Force personnel do. And the next, and as part of that, I also want to know the 250 million that you're talking about, that is growing up to an end goal of 250 million, or is it 250 million every year so that everything keeps, keeps on, keeps on going down the track? Yeah. So, let me start with the, the last part of that. Uh, so yes, I, I'm advocating for $250 million a year for about five years to really jumpstart the effort. And then depending on uh, what civil and commercial actually do, we might be able to adjust or, or grow from there. It, it will depend. But we need to have that initial investment to get started as a foundational area, or we're just going to continue to flail. But your question about uh, guardians being spread thin... Absolutely, they're spread thin. Uh, they are the service as a service. It's it is way too small. Um, 
when I was part of the Space Force standing up the, the headquarters staff, we were defining what mission we needed to do while doing that mission, while trying to grow, um, you know, the team uh, from a handful of folks uh, on up. And, and it was challenging. It was very rewarding and it was exciting. Uh, I loved it. I'm glad I did it. I don't ever want to do it again because it was difficult. But, but let me just say that um, I think the 200 personnel is the right starting point uh, because we already have some folks that are, that are doing this from AFRL and from DARPA. Um, and so adding the cadre of cislunar-focused guardians of about 200 allows them to do the S&T, the acquisition, the operations, the staff work to help shape and, and grow. And again, after that five years, I think it'd be appropriate to reassess and, and determine how quickly the cislunar mission set is going to grow and, and, and pivot from there. I, I think the Space Force is going to have to continuously look at its manpower uh, personnel requirements across the board on a regular basis because they are too small now. Uh, and even with some modest growth like this 200 for cislunar, it's, it's not going to be enough long-term. There's too many new missions, uh, as well as doing what we were doing before, uh, delivering great space capabilities like position navigation, and, timing, communications, And that responsibility is only growing, the current responsibility. That, that, that responsibility is only growing. And then we also have the responsibility to protect those against the threat that we're now openly recognizing uh, as a real driver. Um, so it is a challenge, uh, but I think the 200 uh, is, is a great place to start. So just because I did cut you off when you were about to go into cislunar strategy, you know, what should be that cislunar strategy or theory of success details? So I really like the new Space Force uh, mission statement, uh, you know, secure U.S. interest into and from space. I think the same sort of thing can be applied to the cislunar regime. Uh, you know, maybe just swap out cislunar regime uh, in that existing statement. But but that is, I think, a very profound and and meaningful statement in and of itself. And then I think the strategy needs to articulate exactly what it is the Department of Defense, not just the Space Force, but the Department of Defense, to include U.S. Space Command and other services, are going to do to accomplish that securing role. Um, in some ways, it's gonna be basic missions like we do in the geocentric regime, PNT, communications, uh, domain awareness, et cetera. Uh, but in other areas, it could, it could be wholly new and specific to cislunar. You know, we talk about like like search and rescue. Well, search and rescue could be could I'm be just a thing. saying anomaly. If we're sending astronauts, and then you've got you know commercial folks um, also wanting to go up to the moon and and do stuff. I mean, it it it's coming. Yeah, it it is, uh, and I think that that may be a mission set that that we do need to be looking at. Uh, I think more immediately. You talked about some of the missions going on in 2024. Uh, there are 10 missions headed to the moon in 2024. And as you said, the first one, Astrobotics, uh, Peregrine, uh, did not go so well. Uh, they had a, an anomaly, and they unfortunately could not make it to the moon. I will applaud them. They have been incredible in their transparency and openness about what the status of their vehicle is and what their plans are. I mean, that is the gold standard for how corporations, as well as, I think, governments need to act uh, as we head yeah. to the cislunar environment. It, it's been phenomenal. It, 
and fingers crossed they'll be able to get their second mission off this year as well. There was they have a second mission. I think it was scheduled. I don't know if it's still on because you know things have to go through review and right. see what happened and et cetera, et cetera. But Astrobotic has another uh, CLIPS NASA mission to land stuff mm. on the moon uh, in the late fall, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and then next month we've got uh, another CLIPS mission and so on and so on. And the Indians are are, are coming as well. I mean, they've, they've made a, a promise to their people that they're going to send up 12 missions to space. And mm-hmm. we all know that they, they have real ambitions on the moon as well, especially after their landing um, there last year, which was just yeah. fantastic. It, it was. That was a, a huge success. They became the fourth nation to ever land successfully on the sur- surface of the moon, the first to do it in the South Pole region, uh, which is great. And I, and I tell that story of what happened. Uh, in the August time frame, because Russia was trying to get there about the same time, they took a much faster trajectory, and of course, they a really failed. snarky sort of move. But yes, yeah, yeah, I, I compared it to try, a try cis- to steal the thunder of India. Yeah, <laughs> uh, cislunar tortoise in the hair, so to speak, and uh, it, it worked out well for India. And uh, you know, congratulations to them, and I hope they have a lot more success. And of course, they recently signed uh, to be part of the Artemis Accords too, which is uh, another great win. Um, you, you know, an, another big gripe amongst my guests is that there's a lot of talk about developing technology. And earlier on um, in this conversation, you did lost, you know, list off a number of, of, of technology areas like space domain awareness, um, position, navigation, and timing in the Cislunar region, which is going to be a whole very interesting uh, thing to get after. Certainly very different than, you know, just having the, the PNT for around the Earth, mm-hmm. right? Right. All sorts of stuff is moving. And then you've got the gravitational pull. But what has been the gripe is that there are technologies that are new and, and vital and have been developed or in the in the you know pathway of being developed. You know, some of them are ready to be put into fairings, right? To go and get some, you know, real space heritage to do, you know, a test drive. But a lot of it's stuck on Earth and I know one of the things that you said is that, you know, we need to stop making things. We need to actually start demonstrating things, right? And I say this in comparison to China's 2023, which I thought was the year of China, the show me year for China. They sent a lot of missions up. They, they had a satellite that could grapple and take satellites to another orbit. They have a satellite that can essentially do refueling missions and therefore extend the lifespan of their, of their satellites. Um, and they also had a a launch, a military space launch cadence that was really quite extraordinary. So I'm just wondering how can we unstick that, you know, because part of demonstration is also part of deterrence. Yeah, I agree with with your statement 100% that uh, demonstration is part of deterrence. Uh, And I'm also concerned that uh, we might be relying on our past success a little too much uh, in this country. I mean, we're the only people to land humans on on the moon and return them safely. Uh, That's a tremendous accomplishment. And I never want to be portrayed as, as minimizing that. That was magnificent. But that was over 50 years ago, and we had a great advantage there, and we've let it begin to erode. And we have great plans with, with NASA and some of our commercial activities as well, but they're yet to be demonstrated. 
we actually need to get out there and, and do those things because China is doing those things. They are putting things on the far side of the moon. They are launching sample return missions uh, this year. And so we have to be prepared. We can't let ourselves fall victim to some sort of false sense of confidence uh, because this is hard. Uh, as we've seen in hypersonics, for example, we thought we had an advantage. We kind of took a breath and, and rested. And the next thing we know, China has an advantage in hypersonics. So we can't let cislunar become that same sort of approach. We need to demonstrate those technologies, transition them rapidly to operations. And, and that the transition to operations isn't just so that we have that, that capability, but it also ensures that the industrial base is ready. They understand what the requirement is going to be of them. And the team of people that demonstrate a great technology or a new capability don't disband uh, only to have to be reassembled later because we finally made the decision about the architecture we want. Um, so there's a lot of good reasons to move out uh, on these technologies now demonstrate them, establish that baseline infrastructure that we know we're going to need, not just for national security, but for civil and commercial. And because that same infrastructure is going to be used to secure those national security uh, objectives as well as promote them. And so let's do it together with the military involved uh, and in lockstep with the leads that are civil and commercial um, rather than duplicate and actually spend more money. And this is another thing that I, I really want to kind of foot stomp. I'm talking about some investments now, and $250 million may sound like a lot each year for five years. But if we don't make these investments now, it's going to cost us a lot more money in the future, and we won't have as much time. And we risk someone like China establishing a precedent that we don't want to live with. And so it is so important to get out there early and establish the right precedent. You know, I'm a big fan of, of Ben Franklin and what he said about an ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure. And I think Cislunar is going to prove to be the same way. Charles, thank you so much for making the time to come on the Downlink podcast. Thank you, Lord. It's been great talking with you. And uh, I hope people check out the, the paper uh, and, and watch the, the rollout video that we're going to have this week. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.